Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network, where each week I interview someone in the world of food who shares their challenges and successes to help us all learn to lead more enriching and more exciting lives. Today, as my first guest, I have someone who is an extraordinary chef, whose unique cooking style has developed through her deep, deep study of different cultures. And I mean that literally and figuratively, and we're going to get to more of that later. Um, and my second guest is a big mentor of mine and a great world traveler. So I'm very excited to have you here, Courtney Burns of Duna in San Francisco. Um, I'm thrilled you were able to stop in because you live in two separate places and neither one of them New York City. <laughs> Partly San Francisco, um, where you had Bar Tartine, one of the best and most original restaurants I've ever had the pleasure of dining at, and, and Duno, which I haven't, um, haven't been to yet on my list in San Francisco. And you're kind of living in North Adams, Massachusetts, uh, prepping for a new project that we're going to get to hear all about. Grateful to be here. <laughs> So I am such a, a fan of your food, um, partly because it's so unique and it's also really grounded. So it's not unique, but like lost in the air. And there are times when um, you seem by, sorry, you're so driven by a personal style of cooking. And I feel like that's because everything that goes into your food comes from a personal type of experience. And... I'm just wondering if you can tell me how you uh, how you think about food. Like, mm. what part of yourself do you reach into to pull out to come up with uh, the dishes that you did at Bar Tartine and as you're thinking going forward? That's a great question. I would say, I mean, and very multi-layered. On a very deep level, I'd say that for me, the most successful food has an element of nostalgia, and then hopefully or possibly an element of surprise. So the food that I find to be rich and soulful, at first I feel like I can connect with it. It doesn't mean that I've ever had the dish in its entirety, that I've ever had all of what is on a plate or all of the flavors together, but there's something that I understand. And one of the reasons I think that's super important is that it creates trust trust from, you know, the kitchen to the diner and everywhere in between. And if that's done successfully, the ability to bring something new in 
um, it's almost like we we get to do that. Right, so once you've established trust. But do you think that um, nostalgia is such a tricky thing, right? Mm-hmm. What, like what I might have nostalgia for might be completely different from what you have nostalgia for. What's recognizable to me might be not recognizable to you. So like, how do you even find that common ground to start with? And that is a great question. Nostalgia can also be, in this instance, synonymous with comfort sometimes. Mm-hmm. And again, that can mean many things to many people. So I can only go off of my experience mm-hmm. and hope that it reaches the broadest audience possible. Maybe the thing about comfort food is there's something universal about it. I mean, something in it, like in every culture, you know, there's a chicken stew. Absolutely. So, <laughs> you know, we could, there are some maybe common um, starting points. I... I read that you will often ask your dishwashers and your team and the, you know, others who are part of your creative process to share their grandparents' recipes. And that gives you sometimes a place to start. Absolutely. I definitely look to the past to kind of orient myself to the present. And a lot of that just has to do with wanting to know what came before, almost wanting in, in a way, wanting to honor that which was, which gives that which we have now in some ways, just kind of a greater a platform to live on. And so, yeah, I ask, you know, the dishwashers or the cooks, uh, what they sometimes, what did you have for breakfast? Or what sweet did you have when you were a kid? What were the flavors? How did you make it? Because it's not just about the dish itself. It's about the energy within it. Was it celebratory? Why was it being made? How many people were in the kitchen? Who's making it? What's the social hierarchy that's going on? And all of those different things that come into it that energetically create that food so I mean end of the day to me food is very energetic what we put into it we very much get out if we're in touch in that way and so that question is both flavor oriented but also energetically and like familial you know oriented okay so give me I I, I need an example because I think that's just like that's such a compelling idea um you, you know to look at something to me is going to be a chicken, but to you or the person it came from is going to have so much complexity. Like what is something that you, um, like where you can tell that entire story? Mm. And it's something we actually, there's the example that comes to mind is something we actually talk about a little bit in the Birch Artine book, but it's, it's this like chimole, this really dark charred herby sauce that, you know, is all over the Yucatan and probably in many other places as well. And the story of one of our, it was one of our dishwashers that would tell us that his grandmother would make it and his mother would make it with them and they, you know, they would get off the vegetables, they would char them all and how they would pound them and there was almost like this family energy that was going on because they would make it in large batches and then store it and then use it, you know, parcel it out into different dishes. So it was the idea within that as well is the idea of necessity. Mm-hmm. So creating something to have for a long time, creating something with the people that you love for your family that you can pass out. That also is like unctuous and delicious and beautiful. And some of the flavors are also reminiscent of, let's say like a hacho miso, which again is a time honored tradition made in large batches, parceled out, used intermittently. In Japan. In Japan, yeah. And what distinguishes a hacho miso from a yellow miso? It's a dark, really dark, rich, um, long aged miso. I mean. It would be impossible to get anywhere like deep into a conversation with you without going towards Japan or fermentation. It's true. Or <laughs> it's true. It's true. So um, because it's just hanging out there for us, uh, you are quite famous for developing an extraordinary larder, mm. um, and I'm hoping that you can share, you know, some of like why you think a larder is important. I would say that from the creative process, I'm always looking for a muse. So, and that can come in many forms. In the example we were just talking about, that story from that person, likening it to something else. These are muses that create uh, the, you know, the backbone to other dishes. And for the way that I see it and the way that Nick and I see it uh, and all of you know, our cooks as we start to do and build this larder together, because it's by no means a solo project, right. it is the jumping off point. So... In a day, within an ingredient, within a dish, sometimes not knowing exactly where to turn or what does it need, it's almost like you're looking at your palate in front of you. So by creating all of these things, I essentially am creating 
my palette to pull from, it just in, you know, in very much so the same way that a painter would. And then those things can be combined and utilized to create something that's greater than the sum of its parts. So I really see it in that way, and kind of to touch on the necessity point, where in some cultures it is necessity, and some, like, traditionally, most larders were necessity. Now we get to look at them as creative jumping-off points. And so the idea of necessity versus creativity is always very much on my brain. And having moved from San Francisco now to the East Coast, it's even more in the foreground for me because, yes, I still want to be creative, and, yes, I get to do these things that create flavor and aroma and that I can layer flavor into. Another reason to create the larder is it's we can capture flavors that we wouldn't be able to have otherwise. And so that's a huge part of it. I mean, I think that the traditional larder, like what most people would think of as larder and what you have as your own larder, um, the one for the restaurant, are so completely different. Like for me, the larder probably has peanut butter and malt and salt and um, a huge um, variety of preserves Mm -hmm. that I did not put up that I purchased... um, that you know there's just the, the staple the staples mm-hmm. but um you brought with you are there nine different um things i'm just thinking they came in a grid um <laughs> that you've been working on and uh for your project called loom in north adams mm-hmm. did you want to get there early because the restaurant doesn't open uh, for another what six months eight months probably in autumn autumn yeah, early okay. autumn of 2018 um, so did you begin and settle in just so you could get to know the land and create this larder of flavors to work with? There's an element of that. I mean, I moved there originally. I mean, we definitely thought our timeline was different as all things go. But needing to, for me, really needing to root and understand where I am and not just feel like I'm making food that maybe I would have been making in California. Granted, the undercurrent, the ethos of how I like to cook is not necessarily going to change per se, but everything else, I think, well, the landscape is different. The people are different. The farmers are different. So really wanting to understand that. One of the main reasons I went out was that I wanted to meet the farmers. One of the most frightening aspects of leaving San Francisco was leaving a community of farmers and growers and artisans that I had ostensibly been working with for 17 years. Mm -hmm. And knowing that that that's the community that, I need to understand the most. Was there some part of you that welcomes that fear? Oh, absolutely. Because that's a big deal, you know, because really the um, your food is so connected to this, this, the soil as well mm-hmm. as nostalgia. Um, so what was it like? Like, what was it like just jumping in and accepting the fear or wanting to do something that challenging? I would say that it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So it was an open door that I felt like I would be foolish not to walk through. Why don't you tell us the story of like how this mm-hmm. all came to pass? So I would say it was autumn of 2016, prior to closing Bar 13. I got a call from a couple of the partners. And backstory of that is my closest girlfriend um, of 20 years. She lives here. She, as all best friends should do, bought like God knows how many bar 13 books over the holidays of 2014 and gave <laughs> one them. of the greatest books and you won a mm. ton of awards for it and we feel very grateful for that yeah 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 it was a great book okay Thanks. <laughs> it was fun um so she bought it for everybody and on the receiving end was one of the partners and he really connected with the ethos of the book and how would you describe that just for listeners who don't know the ethos just a maker's mindset but wanting to bring that sort of maker's mind into the home kitchen and say also choose your own adventure. Like you don't have to do it all, but if you're curious about how things are made, we're happy to show you how we make them, which is just one way. Mm-hmm. But you know, we inv- basically we want to invite people to try something new and different and to build their own palette to work from because cooking's easier when you have it, I think. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. So, so this I- amazing book got sent out. The um it was sent to someone who was starting this project in mm-hmm. North Adams. Yeah, and I got contacted from them, and they just said, hey, we really want to, we want a larder is basically what it was. We, we want someone who wants to really uh, work with the people here and put things up and understand the, you know, the community. Will you come look at the space? And I was like in the middle of 
understanding what it meant to close Bar 13. Yeah. We had just opened uh, Motsu, which is now Duna, and we were about to close on a restaurant across the street, which was going to become Crescent, which we decided to let go of. And I said, I have no reason to be on the East Coast. This is crazy. They said, well, you just come see the project. Sure, I'll come see the project. So I went and saw it. I met all the partners. Amazing group of people. Really seemed like they wanted to do something based in a really kind of humble and pure um, way. You know, kind of a new, they wanted to do a new style of hospitality and just create like a really genuinely warm and inviting vibe in that area. And so originally I was, fell in love with this one space and was like, sure, I'll put a 14-seat restaurant here. That's what everyone would want to do. And once that is I, what, I, what everyone would want to do. Of course. Except it's cold in the winter. And sure, it's cold <laughs> in the winter and all of that. But it was really about the people. It was really about the people who were creating this and the opportunity to do it. And I asked one of the partners who is involved in, in the food world as well in a certain way and you know, knows all, could be talking to anybody. And I said, well, why are you talking to me? And he's like, because I don't think you've been able to realize your dream yet. And I was like, I don't know if you planned that, but you got me. Um, <laughs> and in some ways, I was like, no, I haven't. And then I was like, and I don't know if I even totally know what it is, but I'm totally open to exploring what that means. Wow. And so we're not opening a 14-seat restaurant. We're opening a larger, you know, like 60-seat restaurant. We're going to have a 48-room hotel. Like, we want all of our guests to be able to eat there, like, to come... Like, there wasn't the humble space that this whole project was built on. And so it really became clear to me instantly that we needed a restaurant so we could feed and nourish the people that wanted to come be with us. So, okay, so you got over whatever that fear was when you landed in North Adams. Like, then what? You're, you, you don't get to cook, right? Because there's no restaurant. Um, you have to find a place to live. Um, you've left this, um, you know... You, Nick, who's your partner, life partner in um, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. It was a lot. And speaking of larder, I, on the moving truck, I packed tons of our larder on there as if I was like... Oh, you're a pioneer woman. Yes, a pioneer woman, a nomad. <laughs> and, you know, that whole notion of necessity versus creativity comes really, is very strong when I think about how much I brought with me, which is hysterical. That is funny. It's... <laughs> It's ridiculous, but um, nonetheless, I did. And yes, I landed, and I didn't have a home to live in right away. We were uh, redoing a house that I now live in. So no, I didn't have a restaurant kitchen. I didn't have a home kitchen at a hot plate. Oh, my goodness. And I all of a sudden was in a new place and needed to kind of just start to understand where I was and rebuild my life. And I had said yes to something, and... I was on the bus. Well, you can't get off the bus. You know, there was, it was like there was no doors on the bus. <laughs> I don't think I'd enjoy that feeling. Um, and so what did you learn about yourself in that moment when you were really deprived of the things that make you you for so much of the time? I realized, and this is something I think that I, I do know about myself, but it became very, uh, very concrete, is that for me, food happens to be one medium that I create from and that I use to understand the world. And when that's taken away from me, I dive into my other creative habits. And uh, what are those? Ceramics. Um, I do. Some I think you wouldn't be a chef in this millennia if you didn't I know. I mean, toss a pot or something. Yeah, it's kind of, it's one of those things, but it is, it's a place that I do find uh, to be very centering. Mm -hmm. um, I do fiber art, you know, I pulled out some canvases again. And so for me, it's very much, the medium doesn't necessarily matter. Food has kept my attention for the longest, and I love it mostly because of its ephemeral nature. But, yeah, I just kind of, you know, dug right into that. I dug right back into, like, I need to move to understand the world, too. So, you know, I got, got moving, started to see the area, you know, and found a yoga you community, found, you know, places to, to go move the body. What did you learn about um, that community? Because I know, um, you know, you said that you use your uh, cooking to understand the sense of place, mm -hmm. and that's very important to you. So, what did you learn about that very, very particular place? Because a lot of American history uh, took place there. Absolutely, and that's something that I'm 
digging deep into right now is really trying to understand the history of the place. I mean, upon first arriving there, I started to look around and realize that I was in a mill town uh-huh. and I was on a railway and a lot of things had happened in this area over a long period of time. And Like what? Oh, just the, the immigration patterns that of people who have you know, come in maybe through New York or elsewhere into there, why they were there, what they were building at the mills, what was going on with the textile industry, and how did they all get pushed out? Where did they go? Um, Starting to see, like, cross-pollination of different cultures and things like that. And so... I thought some of the cultures you discovered there were really interesting, and I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you just tell me a little bit more about that? Sure, there was a very large Italian population, and there still is, like in Springfield, Massachusetts, up until the mid-1950s, there was an Italian newspaper. Um, And a lot of shops and storefronts and commerce were based in that sort of community. There's uh, French-Canadian, there was a a group of Chinese that came over, this whole shoe factory um, story. There was Welsh and Dutch and... Uh, Irish, a very large Irish community. There was a Lebanese community at one point, a couple restaurants there. I was going to say, is there any imprint of all those immigrants on the food of the area? Because I, in traveling through, not deeply but superficially, haven't seen it. No, I would say that there's not. I think that there was. Uh And I'm trying to understand what it was so I can use that in some ways as my current muse to understand the area and then almost get permission to use certain flavors because they would then be based in the area. So for me, that's very interesting. And I've also been looking at, you know, the indigenous people who were there and what were they using and what what came in and what were they fishing and what kind of corn were they growing and these sorts of things so that I can really try and steep myself in a sense of place and understand where I am. Do you, do you limit yourself? Like, do you feel like if I don't see it here and I don't feel it, I won't cook it? Hmm. Not necessarily, but kind of back to that nostalgia, and even if it's not nostalgia, there needs to be a story. There needs for me to be a reason that something's being made. I don't really like to just pluck things out of thin air. I need a story to orient, and that, again, is another layer of trust within the group of people that I'll be cooking with and you know, the kitchen that we get to create together, like, we need to understand why we're cooking the food we're cooking and where it's coming from. And then that kind of flows out and filters out to the rest of the people who get to, to, you know, enjoy the food and experience the food. So we have the building blocks of something in front of us. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, um, I'm kind of mesmerized, partly by the smell, because I opened up these tiny, tiny jars. Mm -hmm. But could you just randomly take some of these Um, larger items that you brought and tell me um, what they mean to you and how you might use them? Absolutely. So there's a couple different rose-based ingredients. One is a rose salt and one is a rose shio koji, a salt koji. And with that Lebanese community coming in, the ability to use that sort of flavor um, is on my mind. So wanting to explore that a little bit. Um, and then the harissa as well, kind of a melding of many different cultures. So that's got a few different, very old, aged uh, chili pastes in there, and then lots of spices and all sorts of things. And so it's a very layered um, condiment, and all of those kind of nod to the Middle East. And so wanting to explore how to use those flavors in a way that don't make a dish necessarily Middle Eastern, but have layers of other aromas in them. And have you dreamed of a dish that that would be, I mean... With those ones, I mean, I would use the rose shiokoji um, rubbed on fruit to either grill. There's going to be an open fire at the restaurant. So to grill and then possibly used, you know, in, in, I would say, you know, really thick uh, strained yogurt, some of the rose salt on top and maybe pomegranate molasses and some other things um, of that nature. So that would be really fun to use it in a way... Uh, that was really highlighting uh, fruit and sweet and savory kind of together, which is something I love. There's also a preserved lemon and sumac. So, you know, those few ones are definitely in that same vein, but I really like to use that one in kind of a play on a torta miel. So what's that? Italian, like apple cake. Oh. But there was huge Italian community. There was a Lebanese community and 
I want to see what happens almost when you take kind of a classic dessert, but use these other flavors in there. Not to create something that's like overtly different, but Mm -hmm. just to say, these people were here and they're cross-pollinating and they're living next to each other. And I think in some ways it would naturally happen if I were to imagine the story in my head. And so, I just love, like, when I hear that, I just imagine this, you know, guild hall where, you know, ghosts just in their long clothes sort of dancing these mm. different cultures coming together, but you're just doing it in food. Yeah, and wanting to just know what that looks like. And then some of the other things, one of them is a fermented um, honey with pine buds in it. So there's this pine cobble, this one hike that I like to go on in North Adams. And when the pine buds were just starting uh, to come out, I went and harvested a bunch of them and then put them in a fermented honey and that'll get, it can get used as it is and have a really nice crisp, crisp texture or pureed up and so that aroma is totally infused in the honey. And then there's a few spirits. So one of them is a candy cat mushroom spirit. So that one is really my story of reverse migration, which is kind of where I feel like what I'm in, <laughs> going from the newest part of the country to the oldest and really wanting to understand where I am. So candy cat mushrooms, these are from California, but they have a maple aroma. So whereas we don't really have maple in California, we don't have candy caps here. Putting them together to me says, oh, this is, this is me in limbo. This is me in this liminal space where I'm not in the moment of one place or the other, but I'm of both. And to me, that's really representative of that. Um, the other one is a smoked crab apple spirit. So my love of uh, smoky spirits in general, these beautiful crab apples that uh, local farm Scott's Orchard in Vermont I was able to get. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And so playing with some of those ingredients and, you know, the, the apple culture in New England is so strong and wanting to start to work with that. And it's not necessarily like a calvados and it's not, you know, a whiskey, but it kind of has some of those aromas. And then I grew a lot of um, herbs in my garden this summer. One of them was bronze fennel. So there's another one that's an infused bronze fennel, fennel spirit. And these will just get mixed. Some of them can be uh, just taken on the rocks. Some of them will be infused into kind of like apothecary style. Um, I feel like you really you need a poetry slam because <laughs> I mean I think your food, your well the ingredients, the larder, and the way that you think is just it's um, it's really poetic the way these ideas come together in your mind. We're going to take a, a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to go on a little journey that includes Courtney, but also. Uh, Nancy Nogrod, who was the longtime editor-in-chief of Travel and Leisure, a great mentor of mine, and one of the best travelers I've ever met. Be right back. Mm-hmm. Kathy Irway, the host of Eat Your Words. Today I'm here with Camilla Salisbury, author of Bob's Red Mill Everyday Gluten-Free Cookbook, 281 Delicious Whole Grain Recipes. We're going to get to the bottom of this gluten-free craze. So why aren't people eating gluten and what does gluten-free really mean? Well, there are two main reasons why um, people are deciding to go gluten-free these days. And the first one is really serious. It's for people who have celiac disease, and it's a pretty serious um, condition. But then there is also a growing number of people with gluten, gluten intolerance or gluten sensitivity, and they're trying out um, gluten-free diets um, because they find that eating foods without gluten just makes them feel better. Okay, got it. But what actually makes something gluten-free? Well, what makes something gluten-free is essentially that it doesn't have any um, of the protein gluten in it. And a lot of people are surprised to learn that uh, many grains do not contain gluten, when in fact just a very small number of grains do. Does anyone offer truly gluten-free options? Um, Well, Bob's Red Mill really understands gluten-free options, um, and that means... They separate their grains um, during the manufacturing process, and so they're testing each batch at every step of the way for purity to ensure that it's gluten-free. So when it says on the package that it's gluten-free, you can be assured that it is gluten-free. 
All right, so gluten-free listeners out there craving some steel-cut oats can pick up a pack of Bob's Red Mill and rest assured you're getting the real deal. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and all the gluten-free products that they offer at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and I am delighted to have Nancy Novograd here. I uh, have known Nancy since I... Gosh, I'm not sure I should say how long I've known you, Nancy, but... You uh, were very young. (laughs) And so were you. Um, I worked for Nancy when she was the editor-in-chief of HG, also known as House and Garden Magazine, the both the two of us share a passion for all things design. Uh, Nancy went on to be the editor-in-chief of Travel and Leisure, which is a sister publication to Food and Wine. So for 20 years, we were side-by-side as editors-in-chiefs and uh, one floor apart. And now I get to be just one mic apart from you (laughs) and talk about... um, your travels in the world and having Courtney here is kind of a, a great um, a bridge in a way because Courtney um, talks about how she, um, you know, cooks to understand the world. And we were hearing a little bit about that, about um, Middle Eastern flavors and Italian flavors and her way of sort of making, um, making meaning and and art through food, ephemeral though it is. And you for uh, decades have made meaning in the in the world through your traveling. What does travel um, mean to you? Well, travel, I mean, it's kind of a banal response, but travel opens up the world to me. And uh, it's about experiencing different cultures, obviously, but also digging down into very specific things like well, like food and art and, you know, all kinds of local habits and shopping, which, <laughs> I, which I call cultural cruising, you know. And one of my big disappointments really is has been over the last many years now, the prolifer- proliferation of brands internationally. And it is so terribly disappointing when something you love... Uh, from India or Italy or, you know, Africa is suddenly available in New York. And, um, you know, and that happens all the time now. Although some, some might say that it, it benefits the, uh, the maker, depending on, on who they are. Yes, definitely. But, but, it but those kind of you like re- discovery. Yeah, it reduces the preciousness. And, you know, I like it in the food world. I mean, it's great when a restaurant like Nur, the Israeli uh, restaurant, I mean, Israeli chef's restaurant, opens up in New York and brings those flavors here. I think, you know, fabulous. Um, Or Macanuda in London, and uh, I forget the name of that restaurant, but it's a branch of a restaurant in uh, in. Uh, Jerusalem, it's great. Exposure is great, but a, but a, it's fun to discover places in their natural haunts. Right. Well, I guess you you understand things in a slightly different way. Um, yeah. You know, if they're in context. I know that, uh, Courtney, you've traveled to Japan and deeply studied that culture. And Nancy, has Japan been on your um, trips? planning? Yes. Well, I'm planning a trip there next fall. I've been a few times, and I adore Jap- Japan. Uh, it is kind of a mysterious place. It doesn't open itself up to you the way some else India does. I mean, India is an exotic culture, but it's very accessible, and maybe it's because of the language that so many people, so much is done there in English, but it's also about the Indian personality and the well outreach, whereas Japan is a bit more closed and a bit more delicate. Did you find that because you lived there at, at least for two weeks? I know studying Koji, but perhaps for for longer. Did you find Courtney that it was um, hard to get in there? You know, I was very lucky in the people that I had helping me explore 
around were Japanese people or people that had lived there. They all spoke Japanese. When I was on my own, um, I just kind of get in there, you know, and try and experience as much as I can. I mean, there's always roadblocks, but I just I almost see them as opportunities, not as roadblocks. But I was taken around by people who really, for one, knew what I was looking to experience. Right, maybe the specificity of your desires. It was very specific. It, it helps you sort of get in that yeah. uh, keyhole. And I was with people who were trusted by those that I was coming in contact with. So I was I was welcomed in. But by all means, there is that aspect of, you know, a little bit more of a closed um, a closed culture and wanting to hold it, you know, holding it close to their heart. And I respect that. Well, there's so much preciousness there. You know, things are so carefully done. And there's such a sense of beauty and history, and um, I like that it's not immediately open, that you have to dig deep. Uh, actually, I was going to take a gift wrapping class last mm. night at the Japan Society. The, uh, Good timing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Nancy, when you were editor-in-chief of Travel and Leisure, um, 9-11 happened, yeah. and uh, subsequently, I mean, I don't know that travel was not complicated before, yes. but I feel that ever since then, the notion of what is the meaning of travel um, has changed, morphed, and become ever more important. And I always admired the way that you um, navigated through those times. And I'm wondering, as the times get even harder for people right. who are globalists. Right. Um, what is your advice to, you know, leading a global life and countering the, you know, the nationalistic impulses? I think it's more important than ever to get out there and to be open and you know, to represent yourself as, you know, an individual and as an American who, who has a... An interest in experiencing the world and and opening up his or her own world to others, I think you know it's key for us all. And what do you think the role of food can be? Because of course, food crosses boundaries um, silently, mm -hmm. and there's an acceptance of you know um, there's a greater acceptance of food than people. It seems. What do you think the role of food can be? I think that food is a soft entry point to culture. I really think that I, it... Yeah, that's really well said. I love that. And the time, like the times that I've gotten to really go abroad in the last couple of years, and it's, a couple of years ago, I was like, I'm going to leave quarterly because it is, which hasn't totally happened, but it, it more it's or goal. less um, has been something that I wanted to really bring back into my life. And so through food is really how I got to go to places. Like I was, got to go to India and I worked in this Ayurvedic restaurant in Chennai, which was like mind blowing. Um, I was in And why was it mind blowing? Oh, just the way that food is, is seen from the restaurant and the Ayurvedic. Kind just of defined for people what context. Ayurvedic is too. So it is a, Ayurvedic is the, is one way that, Indian culture looks at medicine and healing, um, different doshas, different ways of food combining, things like that. And that restaurant lived by those principles in the way that it created food. In any other place, it would have been like very high-ranked Michelin star-style restaurant. It was amazing the way that they executed, the way that they created flavor. And then also the way that like sweets were... Um, included in the beginning of the meal, they call it mette to whet the appetite. The way that different uh, layering of spices were included, but the whole experience was just out of this world. So that was one way that I got to experience the culture through being part of the food. Same thing with Morocco. I took over a restaurant for four days in Marrakesh. I was all of a sudden in the, the spice markets. I was in, you know, the vegetable markets, and so I got to experience it that way I was involved with the food in Japan and so that is how I understand how to be a part of a new culture so I um I want to bring together two people who are clearly great mentors and and talk about that as a topic because um according to when you were talking about your 
restaurant experience. You uh, are a co-chef, right? Mm -hmm. um, your experience comes into play. Nick's experience comes into play. But as you were talking, I was struck by how important the experience of every person on your team is in order to make the full menu, the full experience. It really isn't that old view of like, I am the chef and I'm going to tell you that this is what we're doing today. Um, and Nancy, having experienced it firsthand, <laughs> I know that you are a, um, a groomer of people. Well, actually, you're really good at clothing advice too, but I meant more like you. <laughs> you're really good at um, encouraging people along. And uh, so what do you think the, the key is to be a good learner from a mentor? And then what is it to be a good mentor? Ah, well, to be a good learner from a mentor, mentor it requires a certain degree. Well, it certainly requires openness and a willingness to examine what what you yourself do and and a desire to do it better. But um, also, kind of a a desire to move ahead. And I think to be a good mentor, you really have to like people. And you really have to have a certain sensitivity to other people and how best to inspire them and how best really to let them know when something they're doing could be done better. You know, it's a, it's a very hard thing it, it, as a parent, too, to... Um, to guard someone's uh, pride and, uh, and desire to succeed while, you know, moving them a little bit away from what they, the way they might be doing things. And I think, you know, being a good mentor really involves that skill, that instinct. For, and also for self-correction. You know, uh, on the mentor's part. On the mentor's part. That's interesting. Like, in yeah. what way? Well, it, you know, to listen to what you're saying and how you're 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 giving advice, and be sensitive to that. Sometimes it's you may not have been as clear or as helpful as you might have been, or sometimes you may have been uh, unintentionally hard on someone. I don't think you can be too hard and really be a mentor, though. You I don't. Mean, you have to build on, build on the positive. And what about you, uh, Courtney? I would say, first off, mentoring and managing people is probably what I see as the most challenging part of what I do, but it's also in many ways the most gratifying. The, the we mentality I find to be really important what happens in a restaurant is not a solo project. It takes everybody coming together every day and the entanglement of everybody's energies is palpable and real. And I'm also of the belief that the kitchen is where the team at that given moment has chosen to do their deeper work in. So my personal work of wanting to be a better person and a better teacher and a better student, all of the things. Just as much as food's a medium, it's you know of cre creativity. It's a medium for self improvement, and that's the way that I look at that sort of team energy. And I say to the to the team often that if we could all just strive to be 0.025 percent better the next day, we're doing the work. We're choosing to do it in the kitchen. It just happens to be the place we get to do it in. That means like some people come with their stuff and we have to say, is this stuff appropriate here right now? Do you, do you get to be this way right now? Do you find it difficult to give that feedback? And, and is, I mean, kitchens move really fast. They do. And it's really intense. And um, there's a lot going on. Do you find that you have the time, patience, wherewithal, and they equally have the time, patience, wherewithal to take it on? I would say not always in the moment. I mean, the pause when agitated is the adage that I use often. <laughs> and there's times where, like, I have stopped the entire line before and just said, like, no. Like, we are not having the energy that 
we want to put into the food. Like, we are feeding people our energy right now. It is not fair to do it this way. Let's pause, let's breathe through our feet, let's ground ourselves again, and then we'll start cooking. And it's as much as, I mean, I learn every step of the way. I wake up every day, I'm like, oh God, what am I gonna learn today? You know, what am I gonna mess up today? Because that's where the magic happens. But it's really, the mentoring process for me is really about, yes, it's cooking, you can teach people to cook. Can we teach people to be their best self more often than not? We can't expect it all the time. That's why it's 0.025% better every day. 1% is crazy. We'd have to be 365% better every year. Like <laughs> That is way too much to ask of anybody. And so, you know, I learn from everyone I'm surrounded by every day. I believe that there's a very fluid student-teacher relationship happening all the time. And the minute that I lose sight of that and think that I'm just the teacher, I'm not involved in this sort of collective mindset anymore. And so my mentorship, I think, in a lot of ways is just trying to, to be present for people and available. And then when it's just time to do it, you know, you're just getting down to the nitty-gritty you are. And you can say to someone, like, pause, this is not, it's not working right now. Wow. It's and, intense. Um, I... I wonder if you've each had inspiring mentors and what that person has um, taught you. I had a mentor at, at the New Yorker magazine, the uh, fiction editor, Rachel McKenzie. And she really taught me how to edit, but which is something you can't really teach. I know that because <laughs> I never learned. <laughs> well, so. I'm sure you know, Nancy, no. you know it's true. Um, anyway. But she would have me write letters for her. I was her assistant. And really, writing letters in Rachel's voice for Rachel, two writers, I mean, these were letters critiquing con uh, uh, their words, really taught me how to go about thinking about, you know, writing and expressing myself. And that Anyway, she was wonderful. Then in book publishing, I... I love that it was actually... That, that's a specific skill. That's, that's yeah. a mentoring, a skill that gives you um, a worldview, yeah. which is an unusual way to mentor, I think. That's interesting. Yeah. But, you know, when I had mentors all along. I mean, there was Bruce Harris at uh, Crown Publishers, where I was in a division, uh, Clarkson Potter. And he taught me the thrill of working for books, the fun of working with books and authors, and it was fun. And uh, so anyone who's moved along in a career has had mentors. I mean, sometimes you may not even realize that you have a mentor. I think some people spend a lot of time, um, they spend time looking for them or asking for them when they, if they were just more accepting and open, they'd realize they had someone... Yes. To, if they were more open, they could learn from. And what about you, Courtney? I would say very early on, um, when I moved to Northern California, Marsha McBride, I was cooking with her. Right, because you were at Cafe at Rouge. At Cafe Rouge, and she, you know, she had just come from Zuni, and she had been all over. She had run um, that kitchen at Zuni for a while, and then opened up her own kitchen. And I remember, you know, every night, no matter what happened, we were very busy there. She would be bleaching the kitchen and scrubbing the fryer and doing all of it. And she was so sweet. She, was, she would tie this like kerchief around my head while I was cleaning. But she was just in it with you all the time. And she wouldn't leave until that kitchen was spotless. And her work ethic was amazing. And she took me under her wing and really taught me how to cook. I had no idea what I was doing <laughs> I can remember messing something up fairly royally and her just kind of looking at me and guiding me through it and step by step telling me what to do what is my next step when I'm cooking on a hotline and I do it with my new cooks now exactly like she did to me she'd be like okay turn around no grab your towel first okay now put the saute pan in the thing and you have to this is one way in which people can be trained. It's step by step. It becomes muscle memory. So she was a huge mentor for me very early on, just to watch someone work in that way. Uh, it was really beautiful. And then I went on to work for Mike Tusk at the original Quince, and he was a, an amazing mentor in so many ways. 
in his deep, deep connection to the farms and the farmers, and which meant that I was up at like five in the morning going to pick up the geese because I just thought it was great. <laughs> uh, and he taught me how to butcher whole animals. He taught me how to butcher whole fish and really that whole ethos of cooking. So he's a huge mentor for me. And watching him build something from the ground up, from something small to something big, was amazing to watch. And even when I left, to be able to watch it continue um, on. There's been so many. Amaryl and Lori at Boulette's Larder, huge mentors in how to cook from within. How to put what you are feeling on a plate. What happens if you have a bad day? You gotta just kind of hold it back. <laughs> you make really spicy food. No, that's good. <laughs> Something to mask it, right? Hide your feelings. Well, if you have, I mean, if it, it is just having to paradigm shift because I mean, my woo woo is, you know, there. It's you're putting that out there, so it's it's about recognizing it and being able to pause or just using that as the muse, not necessarily infusing it into the food, but using it as the fuel for it, but. More often than not, their sensibility of beauty and connection is really what I learned from them. Okay, well, I think that's a beautiful way to um, end this episode of Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much. Um, Courtney, where can people find you? The restaurant's called The Loom. You're on Instagram at... At Bala and Burns. Burns. There's some underlying things in there. I don't know how to call those. B-A-L-L-A underscore. Underscore. Burns, B-U-R-N-S, um, or Bala and Burns. That's it. Now you find it. Um, and then, yeah, a restaurant will be called Loom in North Adams, and then we're still at Duna in San Francisco. That's fantastic. And Nancy, following your uh, travels is great for anybody. <laughs> um, well, where should they follow you? Uh, on Instagram at Nancy Novograd. And uh, I'll be traveling in February to India again. Mm. That's my next big trip. That sounds fantastic. And you know where to find me? Uh, FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter and Dana Cowan on Facebook. I want to thank my awesome engineer, David Hattishore, for another great day. And thank you all for listening. And we'll be back next week. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.